Good morning. I printed everything off this morning, so if my computer fails, I've got a better backup than last week. I want to welcome you all here, and I want to, well, first of all, acknowledge all the ladies, all the mums. We want to uh, be a church that honors femininity, that honors uh, what it is to be a woman, that honors what it is to be a mother. And for those who aren't mothers, there is no doubt many places where you are plugging in and acting as a mother uh, to many and as, a, as an encourager. So if you are a woman this morning, then be blessed that God has made you a woman, and we want to honor that this morning. I'll ask you now to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4, and we're going to be looking at 11 through 16 today. Uh, so turn there, 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16, and once you have it, then I will ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the words of God. <clears throat> Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers, and may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Before Tanya and me bought our first farm in Landmark, I worked in the feed business for many years. I worked at Landmark Feeds as a nutrition consultant, and I got to meet all kinds of people and be on all kinds of farms with all kinds of different characters. Uh, and there was one farm that I used to stop in at monthly, uh, and it was a very busy place. It wasn't a particularly big farm, but it was always busy. There was tractors running, and you'd go into the barn, and the vacuum pump was running, and the cows were out of feed, and three people were running around, and it was just mayhem. But busy, busy, busy. <laughs> okay? Every motor, every tractor, everything you could picture was running, and it seemed like the work just was not getting done. Okay? The cows weren't milked, cows weren't fed, tractor wouldn't start, you know, whatever. Uh, just busy, but no organization. Nothing was getting accomplished despite all the hard work that was going into it. And then once I was done my call there, I'd go to a neighbor a couple miles away, and the yard was peaceful. Walk into the barn, cows are all laying down, they've all been milked, they've been fed, they're chewing their cud. It's quiet, not a peep on the yard. Okay? It looked a lot less busy, but things were happening, things were getting accomplished, different styles. And we live in a time when people often take pride in being busy, right? You ask someone, you meet someone, Oh, how you been? Keep oh, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm bu right, as though that's the greatest virtue in life is to be busy. Right, we we prize ourselves in being busy, and busyness isn't necessarily wrong, but busy for the sake of being busy is also no virtue. There's nothing virtuous in being busy, uh, and oftentimes I think of people like a dog chasing a fire truck. Right, if the dog would ever catch the fire truck, would it have a clue what to do? <laughs> It wouldn't, right? It's just busy. It just feels like it needs to do something. It needs to be busy chasing a fire truck. And I think that that applies to many areas of our life, is that if we are not focused, if there's not a clear vision of where we're going and what we want to do, we do end up becoming busy just for the sake of busy, right? Our work just becomes busy work rather than productive work if we are not disciplined. 
But the goal, even in our Christian lives, is not to be as busy as possible, but to be as fruitful as possible. And in order to do that, we do need, in fact, a laser focus on what we are trying to accomplish, or else those things will remain unaccomplished. Okay, and this is why uh, corporations have vision statements or mission statements or business statements is to keep everybody on track. Okay, this is what we exist for. Here's the goal. We'll write it on our letterhead. We'll do whatever. This is why we are here. And everybody needs to catch a, a, a glimpse of that vision so that we're all marching to the same drum and we're all going to accomplish this vision together. Okay? And if we don't have that, then we end up being like uh, many of you probably watched Alice in Wonderland. Remember when Alice meets the Cheshire cat? Right? And she says, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? And then the Cheshire cat looks at her and he says, well that depends on a good deal on where you want to go. Where do you want to get to? And Alice says, well I don't much care where. And then the cat says, well then it doesn't really matter which way you go, does it? <laughs> right? It doesn't matter which way you go if you're not sure of where you want to end up. Okay? And we as Christians, and as a new church at Trinity, we need to have a clear focus of where we're going. Otherwise, we're going to get lost and distracted in busyness. Okay? And there's no virtue in being busy if it's not fruitful busyness. Last week, uh, in the passage just before this one that we looked at, we looked at the role of discipline and of training in the Christian life and how important that is to have a disciplined training program as Christians so that we can grow in godliness and so that we make godliness contagious in our families as we train our children and our grandchildren and those around us in godliness. So if last week we were looking at the training program, uh, what we're going to look at this week is the nutrition program. Right? If an athlete enters into training, their diet needs to reflect accordingly what they're trying to accomplish, right? So if you're exercising a certain way, you need certain calories to come into your body. You need to feed yourself, uh, and that's what we're going to look at today. So these next couple verses, Paul is going to drive that nail of training even deeper. And he's going to do this by pointing to Timothy the tools that he will need in his training program. Okay, he's not leaving Timothy on his own just with a bunch of marching orders, but then no way to get there. He's putting some tools in his hands so that he can train himself, that he can discipline himself and the church around him for godliness. Okay, so Paul is putting some very practical tools in Timothy's hand. And with the right tools, with a clear, focused vision in mind, Timothy is now equipped to pastor the Ephesian church into godliness and into fruitfulness. He's going to know where the church needs to go and how to get there. And it's his job as pastor to share this focus with the rest of the church so they're not in the dark. Okay? This is the corporate mission statement made public. The church has a mission statement, which is to glorify God. Okay? And we're going to look at that deeper. What is our mission as a church so that we do, are involved in fruitful work and not just busy work? In verse 11, it starts with command and teach these things. So we just read last week again about the importance of training for godliness and how Christians are su supposed to stay on focus, not get sidetracked with irreverent silly myths, but we are to turn our attention to productive things like growing in holiness. And so Paul is reminding Timothy to command and to teach these things. And a word like command comes with authority, right? That's a military-style word, command. And we live in an age that doesn't much appreciate authority, even when it's legitimate authority, so this may seem strange that one minister would tell another minister to command certain things. But the teaching of Scripture are the words of life, 
And as we have already seen earlier, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So there is a certain authority that comes with the biblical message. And it's fitting for Paul to tell Timothy to command this. They're entrusted with the truth. This isn't a suggestion. It is, in fact, a command. Christ has entrusted the church with his gospel and his truth. And therefore, it makes sense that the church isn't really just suggesting and inviting. We are doing those things. But we are also commanding and teaching with authority. Not because we people have authority, but because the authority is invested in the word of God. And so we need a laser-sharp focus. This is one of the things in the nutrition program here. We need a laser focus on Scripture. Otherwise, because we are sinful, because we are forgetful, we will start to slowly drift off uh, and lose our focus. Reading on in verse 12, it says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And for many of us, this is quite a familiar verse. And it can probably serve as a corrective for many of us on a number of fronts. Okay, and again, in our own age, what do we prioritize? What do we value as youth? Right? Youth culture is a, is a real thing. And of course, there's nothing wrong with being a youth. It's good. But the nature of life is that we go through all the ages before we die. Uh, and so there's, it seems odd that we would be so fixated on perpetual youth as we are uh, in our age. Right? And this manifests itself with advertising. Youth culture has us in constant pursuit of the coolest new fad of the week. Right, and, and just when I learn something cool from my kids, then I do it. And then, Dad, that was like from 2019. Like literally no one does that since 2019. Right? You, you can't stay on top of this because youth culture keeps moving. Okay? Uh, think of this after an election or after some kind of political polling or, or trying to get demographic data on what society thinks... Uh, the majority may well be in favor of, let's say, something we as Christians would agree with, but then there's always the caveat. There's always the way out. But these views are dying, right? Uh, and let's say, you know, with something like traditional marriage. For many years, as this was being discussed, 60, 70, 80% of society believed in real marriage, right? Not in the vandalized version we have today, but it was always with the caveat. But, but if you pull the 18 to 25-year-olds, Things are changing. And of course, that's true. Things were changing, and here we are. But, but the focus and the idolization, and the, uh, it's always on the young, right? What do the 18 to 25-year-olds want? And even in churches, many times churches are happy to discard the wisdom of past ages in favor of well, what Carl Truman calls the beautiful young things, right? And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with being a beautiful young thing, okay? But... <laughs> Uh, when we think about wisdom to operate and to govern God's church, which group of people in the church are uniquely unqualified to have wisdom? The young people. Okay? And that's not a deficiency. There's nothing wrong with you. It just there's, there's, The experience has not been there yet to make wise decisions. And so the biblical standard, the typical model, is to, uh, to honor your elders, to think about what, what's the wisdom that's come from past ages. How would grandma have dealt with this? What would grandpa have said about this, I wonder, right? There's certain wisdom that comes uh, with talking to people who have been through certain things. Okay? And again, this isn't a slam on being young. Paul certainly isn't slamming Timothy for being young. Uh, but the thought patterns, the experience, and the wisdom that can only come from patient perseverance, haven't yet had time to root in younger people. And that's why churches and ministries which gravitate towards youth tends to produce some very imbalanced and unhealthy fruit. We just watched in our house a documentary on 
the way Hillsong is imploding. And, and again, anyone that has a knowledge of church history or has a, has a knowledge of the wisdom of past ages would see disaster written on this from the very beginning of what Hillsong was doing. Okay? And now they're bearing the fruit of that. But the perspective there was just attract young people, attract young people, attract young people at any cost, whip them up into some kind of a frenzy so that they'll come back again, and they are bearing the fruit of that. Okay? Uh, it's, it's coming apart because it was never a good or a biblical model to start with. Okay? And in our youth culture, we also tend to, uh, to write off older people. Right? They're irrelevant. They don't understand they don't even remember being teenagers. What could they ever say? Uh, where's the wisdom with that, right? And we tend to, uh, to write off, in our culture, the very people who are uniquely qualified to help us through our current challenges. So we almost have it upside down, right? We prioritize the youth at the expense of, uh, of the older people, uh, and that creates disharmony. But there's a correction here in what, uh, in what Paul is saying, right? So either extreme uh, has something unhealthy with it. The wisdom of past ages has been to honor the elders and to hold them in high regard. And this was certainly the case in Paul and Timothy's own day, where the priority would have been on the experienced older people. And in fact, a man wasn't actually considered to be fully grown until he was 40, which actually makes me feel kind of good because I feel like I've just, <laughs> I've just barely made it into adulthood now. And so I feel kind of young. But 40 was the age at which a man was considered to be a man. You're now a grown up. At 40, you're probably starting to think reasonably straight. And so this would have been, and you can say it's an arbitrary cutoff, and it is, uh, but 40 was the age that we considered fully a mature man. Okay? Um, and, of course, that is an arbitrary number. And, and again, the, the counterpoint here, the other ditch on the other side of the road, is that we want to reject kind of blind traditionalism which just keeps doing certain things for the sake of doing it because that's what people did in the past. Okay? There's no golden age that we can or should even want to recreate. Okay? And some people talk about the good old days as though it's this golden age, uh, but the problem is there is no golden age. Okay? There, there is no golden age. What's the good old days to the older people now were filled with problems, but those problems can't hurt them anymore. So they just remember the good stuff. There was no good old days. Okay? And for you kids... With all the problems you're experiencing right now at school or at home or whatever else that's a struggle, these are your good old days. When days when those problems can't hurt you anymore, you'll remember now as being the, the great time of life. But the, prob- the, the, the reality is every stage of life has challenges and there is no good old days for us to recreate. We enjoy the season that God puts us in and that's where we are. So we're not trying to re-bottle the past, some past era. We don't want... Um, we don't want to get back to a certain place because that place had lots of problems, right? And many people wish, well, if we could just get back to the 1950s, it was so simple. But the problem is, what did the 1950s create? They created the 1960s, which were an unmitigated disaster. So clearly something was wrong in the 1950s for us to get to the 1960s. There was problems there, they just weren't so obvious. Okay? And so here, as this church and as individual Christians, we want to honor the wisdom that comes with age, but we also want to recognize that time does keep marching on and we can't do anything about it. We have to live in the time which God puts us in and not in some older age which we'd like to romanticize. Okay? Um, if you've read this passage before, maybe like me, you've pictured Timothy as a really, really young guy, right? He's 18 or he's 21 or something like that. 
Uh, but as I consulted commentaries, the general consensus this year is that Timothy was in his mid-30s. Okay? Some have him in his high 20s, but he's not exactly a kid, but he is still short of the standard in that culture, which was uh, 40, to be a man. So he's short of that, but he's not a youth youth anymore. He's, like I say, probably in his uh, 30s, possibly in his high 20s. Okay? And commenting on this, on Timothy's age and on the instructions for the age here, uh, Kelvin says this in his commentary on 1 Timothy. He says this both in regards to others and to Timothy himself. As to others, he does not wish that the age of Timothy should prevent him from obtaining that reverence which he deserves, provided that, in other respects, he conduct himself as fitting of a minister of Christ. And at the same time, he instructs Timothy to supply by gravity of demeanor what is lacking in his age. It's as if he had said, take care that by gravity and demeanor, you gain for yourself so great reverence that your youthful age, which may be open to disrespect, may take nothing from your authority. Hence we learn that Timothy was still young, though he held a place of distinguished excellence among many pastors. And that is a serious mistake to estimate by the number of years how much is due to a person. So in other words, the reason Timothy is to be respected in this passage is not because he was young, but because despite his young age, his conduct made him worthy of respect. Okay? He was acting as a wise man, even if his years said he was still a young man. And this is exactly, in fact, as Paul has commanded him. Set the believers an example. Right? So you can't help your age, you're a young man, but live with maturity, live with discipline, so that if someone's going to possibly write you off as not knowing anything yet because you're young, show them by your conduct that you do understand. Show them by your conduct that you are a mature man, even if you haven't met that arbitrary age at which our culture will say you're a man. Okay, and, and I think we want to make an additional application uh, for our unique situation here as a new church plant. Okay, So this church is very young. It's a newborn baby. It's only a few weeks old at this point. But I think as a whole, this body is probably younger than many churches are in terms of the average age. And thankfully, we do have some gray hair that's here present to provide us with wisdom. But we're also blessed with many young families, plenty of teenagers, and then a crop of little people if you look down far enough. And that is a blessing beyond words. Okay? And I've said it before, and it's really true. There is no greater blessing than having a crying baby interrupt a worship service. That is a sign of hope. That is a sign of a future. That means there is a future. Okay? So if you've got rangy little kids, be thankful, not embarrassed. But we can also apply Paul's words to Timothy to ourselves here as well. Okay? For those of us who are adults. It's easy to run to the shiny new thing. And eventually the new car smell is going to be gone from this church. And we will need something deeper and more substantial than just the fact that this is new to help us develop and mature into mature saints. And so this is why in many ways what we're actually doing here is a return to the wisdom of the past ages, to a wisdom of the old ways, right? We're doing things here like working through creeds and confessions, catechisms. We have a very simple yet hopefully rich Covenant renewal service, right? If you look at your bulletin, you see the five C's of a covenant renewal service. Uh, This is something that's so old, the church has forgotten about it for enough years that suddenly it's brand new again, right? It is a shiny new thing, except it's hundreds and hundreds of years old, okay? Uh, And and so we 
We also need to avoid the temptation of finding something old that's new and shiny. Uh, it's, if it's valuable, if it's worth pursuing today, it's because it's valuable in itself, not because it's particularly old or particularly new. Okay? So by doing these things, we're not trying to get back into the 4th century or to the year 1689 or back into 1953. We're not trying to do any of that. Okay? What we are trying to do is learn from the wisdom of the church's history from the saints of the past so that we can apply that wisdom to our own time. Okay? The church has made many mistakes in the past, but typically not the same ones we're making. And so while we may be quick to point out and judge mistakes of past ages, right? Don't we all do that? We look at a past age and how could they do that? Like, how could they be so stupid, right? We, we tend to do that looking at past ages. Do you ever read an old book and listen to someone from another era tell you how stupid you are? Because <laughs> you need to do that, right? We're really quick to see how bad the mistakes were from past age. Read a book from someone else to tell you about all the mistakes you're making in your age because they'll see it more clearly than you do. Alistair McGrath points this out when he talks about the value of being familiar with history. He said, The reading of old books enables us to avoid becoming passive captives to the spirit of the age by keeping the clean sea breeze of the centuries flowing through our minds. Okay, so we don't want to become tradition-bound, never. But I think we also need to be aware that the traditions that we are most guilty of being blind to and following like slaves are the new traditions that we are used to particularly in our own age. Okay? The new traditions are the ones we typically are blind to. So we need to be aware of that. How are we blinded by the spirit of our own age? Okay? And so whether at the individual level or at the corporate level as a church, we are to conduct ourselves wisely and with godly discipline, just like Paul has instructed Timothy, despite our young age. And in so doing, we will earn the respect of others. And this is especially strong instruction for those of us who are entrusted with leading God's church, as Timothy was. But really, the application is there for all of us. Live as a wise person, even if you're young. Live wisely. Learn from your grandma. Okay? Go help your grandma in the garden for an afternoon, and it will be amazing how much wisdom can come from that dear old lady. Verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And Paul is clear that no matter how long he's going to be away from the church, the mission cannot drift while he's gone. Timothy has to keep focused on what the plan is. He must stay devoted to the same things that the Apostle Paul was devoted to. Okay? And because Scripture is the source of all of our wisdom... Reading them has to be central at all times. Okay? It's so easy to get sidetracked and to start to fill our corporate worship time with other things. Okay? And many of these things in themselves aren't necessarily wrong or sinful or bad. But they can have a way of taking us off the mission, of, of distracting us. Okay? And you'll notice here, hopefully, if you've been here a couple times, you'll notice that even apart from the sermon, every Sunday morning, we use a passage of scripture for the call to worship. And then we do a reading that reminds us of God's law and how it breaks us. And then a different reading that reminds us of God's gospel and how it heals us and makes us whole again. And this is to remind us every week of the biblical pattern of law and gospel, of wrath and grace. We need that reminder because we forget. We start to drift otherwise. Okay, and it, even in the music, you, there's a blend of new songs that are, are rich, and we sang two of those this morning, 
theologically rich songs that really bring out the meaning of God's gospel, of God's grace, and an old hymn, okay, that reminds us of God's gospel, and uh, Psalm 14, singing psalms. That's the church's original songbook. Well, there's a good mixture of the way music is reminding us and getting scripture into our bones, and we need to be intentional about that. Other churches follow a similar practice, but instead of doing a law and gospel reading, they'll do an Old Testament and a New Testament reading every Sunday to kind of remind people of the same patterns. This is also why we make a practice of standing for the sermon text, to draw special attention to the text itself, to God's word, okay? because he has richly blessed us by giving us his word. And, uh, and we need to keep that central. Otherwise, how many times does the service fill up with other things that slowly, right? And while you, we don't really have time for scripture reading this morning because such and such is happening. Yeah, I mean, maybe we need to cut this out. Because, you know, can you make the sermon 15 minutes? Because we got, it, it, and it's not necessarily wrong things, but it's distracting things. It takes us away from that laser focus that God's word must be central at all times. You even see it, some of you have heard me say this before, you even see it in the, the evolution of pulpits. Okay? In the old days, a pulpit was built up onto the wall. And you'd climb stairs and you'd stand there. And it wasn't to draw attention to the minister. It was to show everybody the preaching of God's word is central. This is God's word. Everybody pay attention. Okay? Uh, and we've moved from that to a little glass lectern that can be moved out of the way for when the other entertainments happen in the church. Right? We need a quick, a light, movable pulpit because there's all kinds of other stuff happening up on the stage. And so the stage has become central instead of the pulpit in many churches. And I would suggest that that architectural change is actually a theological change. We've gotten distracted. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh Methodist preacher in the 1950s, got the biggest, heaviest wooden pulpit he could, and he said, screw that thing down to the floor. <laughs> okay? Make that thing impossible to move, because this church is not going to be overcome with entertainment. This is a church that's going to be fixated on the Word of God. Okay? Bolt that thing to the ground. We don't want to accommodate entertainment in our worship service. He wanted his pulpit itself to communicate what he thought was happening uh, in the church on Sunday morning. Okay? But again, just reading the words of Scripture isn't enough. Okay, we don't want to just read carelessly just so we can say we checked it off a list. Yeah, you know what, I read three chapters this morning, or, or we read four verses for the scripture reading before the sermon. Uh, we're not just doing this to check something off a list. Okay, the goal is to be taught by God's word, to be exhorted by it. And the word teaching here is didascalia, which directly translated would actually mean doctrine in that verse. Okay, so when we're reading scripture carefully... We're also putting the details of that scripture together with the details of the other scriptures that we've learned about other weeks or as a child or whatever. Uh, and we're starting to see one unified picture come together. Okay? We're not just treating these as isolated verses. We want to see how this all fits together into one story of what God is doing in his creation. And that work is called doctrine. Simple. It's just putting the pieces together in a unified picture so that it becomes clear. Okay? So again, reading isn't just something to check off our list. It's the first and most important step of being taught by God. We have to read carefully and with a willingness to be taught. And then the word exhortation here is the direct application or encouragement that we make of what we've just read and what we've learned. Okay, so this is where the rubber hits the road. This is the application is the exhortation. So the reading of scripture, the exhortation, and the teaching are like links in a chain. And they are all pulling the church in the same direction direction. 
And the special responsibility here is on Timothy as the preacher, but by extension, all church leaders need to take this very, very seriously. How will we teach others if we're not teaching ourselves? If we refuse to learn ourselves, how will you teach others? That's true for church leaders, but also for parents, right? If you've got little kids, how are you going to teach your kids if you're not in God's word yourself? How are you going to teach your kids something you don't know? How are you going to teach your kids Bible reading is important if you don't have 20 minutes a day to read the Bible? Okay? God's word must be central. And you see that hammered away here in this, uh, in this passage. This is the nutrition program. This is the tools that Paul has put in Timothy's hands so he can do what we read about last week, which is to train and to discipline himself for godliness. Okay? And when we're doing this, it starts to become natural. Reading scripture, putting it together, doing the doctrine, making application, how does this apply to my life, is a little bit like learning math, right? When, you're, when you start grade school, math can be really tough. You've got to memorize the multiplication table. And memorization, if that's what we're going on, is really, really hard. But once it clicks, once you understand how numbers work, it actually becomes really easy, right? Once it clicks, math is the easiest subject you can learn because it's logical. It makes sense, and you don't have to memorize everything. You just know how it works, And so it is with our Christian lives. Once you're so familiar with the content of Scripture, it just becomes obvious how the pieces fit and how I am to live. Okay, But we can't short-circuit that. Put in the work or else it's not going to happen. It won't become natural if we're not doing it. Then in verses 14 and 15, it says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. And Timothy was given gifts of the Holy Spirit to lead Christ's church in Ephesus. And we've seen a few times in this book already some of the unique features that happen in this very slice of time. Timothy's living in a really unique slice of time. There's still apostles who are alive, but the church is transitioning from the age of apostles to the age of ordinary elders and deacons, of which Timothy is one. Okay, so the Apostle Paul is there tutoring him, and yet that transition is happening. Timothy himself is not an apostle. He's an ordinary elder, and so the church is moving into a more mature age in the very lifetime of Timothy. Okay? Timothy was tutored firsthand by the Apostle Paul, but he himself operated as an ordinary elder. However, his gifts were identified and possibly even given directly from God through apostolic prophecy, as we've just read here. But then they were confirmed before the church in a normal, ordinary way with elders laying on their hands. Same as what we practice today. Right? So this transition is happening as the church matures. So Timothy's gifts and callings come from God, just as ours do today. And he is not to neglect these gifts. The gifts are there to use and not to just put on display on a shelf somewhere. Okay, receiving a gift from God doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. Quite the opposite, in fact. It's like the parable of the talents. We are to turn a profit on whatever gift God has given to you, whether it's a big one or a small one, whether it's in this area or in that area. Your job is to not just gloat, well, I got this gift from God. Your job is to turn a profit on that gift. If you've got five talents, turn it into ten. If you've got two, turn it into four. Okay? And once you turn it into four, you've shown yourself a worthy servant. Next time, you're going to get five to turn into ten. Okay? But take the next step. Do the next thing. Be obedient where you are. It doesn't have to be glamorous or supernatural. Take the step of obedience now, and as you prove yourself a faithful servant, you will find more and more uh, responsibility coming your way. Okay? 
So instead of assuming that he's now set, right? I'm Timothy, I got the apostle. Paul is my teacher, I'm good to go. I can rest on my laurels. This is going to be a breeze, right? But that's not what Paul tells him. He says, practice and immerse yourself in these things. So practicing and immersing aren't things that happen over a day or over an hour, but over a lifetime of faithfulness. Okay, and this goes back to the discipline training we read about last week. Over the course of what would be a lifetime of faithful ministry, Timothy is to keep immersing himself in the word and seeing how it all connects and how it all applies and can be put into practice. Okay? And we can all probably think of people who are naturally gifted but then become lazy because they're presuming upon their giftedness. Right? We probably all can think of examples like that, I'm guessing. I see the piano teacher nodding. <laughs> I'm guessing there's been uh, piano students like that, right? But even academically, okay? Some kids can go to school and they'll make a 90% in their sleep because they're, they're academically gifted, right? And so it's just easy. I just make 90% without trying. The next kid is naturally a 70s student, but he has the discipline and the hard work to make himself an 80s student, okay? So who's more respectable? The naturally gifted, lazy 90s student or the hardworking and diligent 70s student who moves himself up to an 80s student? Okay? The one is being diligent, turning a profit, and the other one is just resting on his giftedness. Okay? When I was a teenager, uh, one of the big names in the hockey world was Eric Lindros. Right? And Eric Lindros came in as he was drafted, and he's this big, strong guy, big, strapping hockey player. He's going to be the next Wayne Gretzky. He's, he's great, right? And not only did he not get off on a very good step in terms of his reputation... Uh, in my mind, he never lived up to his potential. He was billed as he was going to be the next Wayne Gretzky, and he was a good hockey player. He was big, strong, every kind of natural gift you could imagine. But he kind of did nothing, in my mind at least. Maybe Kevin and Howard are going to come have a stern talking to me afterward. But I think given the gifts he had, Eric Lindros really did nothing. He really didn't. But at about that same time, there was a little guy by the name of Theo Fleury, who had an incredible work ethic. He was like a little pinball. You couldn't stop this guy, right? Full of heart, full of dedication, full of hard work. Uh, naturally, didn't, clearly didn't have the gifts. He didn't have the size or the strength of Eric Lindros, but he did have a work ethic, which made him, in my mind, a much more respectable athlete than Eric Lindros was. Okay? And so the, the point is, we, we can't help what we're gifted with. God gives you this gift or that gift, or it's in this measure or in that measure. That's not the point. The point is, are you maximizing it? Are you turning a profit on the gifts that you have? Okay? And now imagine what could happen if Eric Lindros would have had Theo Fleury's work ethic. Or imagine if the naturally 90 student had the 70 student work ethic and became a 95 student. Imagine what would happen then, through hard work and through dedication. Okay? And think of the ministry then of Timothy, who was supernaturally gifted, a student of an apostle... But he's put himself in the work, in the situation of immersing himself in God's word. Okay? That's the instruction. He could have just texted Paul or FaceTimed Paul, right? Well, I don't need to study God's word. I've got an apostle. I can just call him up whenever I want, and he can give me the answer of what to do. He's completely bypassing the way of wisdom if he does that. Okay? And many of us approach life that way. God, just tell me what to do. Right? And, and we'll, we'll search after a vision or a dream rather than doing the hard work of immersing yourself in scripture so that you can make application of it. There are no shortcuts, okay? Even though Timothy had access to an apostle, the instruction is to immerse himself in God's word. Then in verse 16, it says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the uh, the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
And as a public leader of the church, Timothy was to be careful for his conduct and for his teaching. And these two cannot be so easily separated, especially for public leaders of the church. If a church leader becomes engaged in immoral or scandalous behavior, all his sound doctrine, all his books, all his teaching somehow rings hollow. Right? If he can't conduct himself with honor in his personal life. He disgraces the message of Christ by public sin. And in the same way, the message of the cross is disgraced by a man who might be outwardly moral, but who neglects his teaching ministry. And this man starts to get distracted from the mission, or he starts to ease up, and he starts offering spiritual TED Talks instead of giving the full sense of God's words. Okay? And sometimes ministers will start to assume that the whole church, the whole flock in front of him, knows the gospel. And now that we know the gospel, now we can move on to other things. But bad things happen when we assume the gospel. Because the first step in forgetting something is to just assume everybody knows this. So we can quit talking about it. We're we're all Christians here, we all know it. I don't have to talk about God's wrath and his forgiveness anymore. Because we all know that. Okay, You do that for long enough and everybody forgets it. And we have to start from scratch again. Okay? Commenting on that trend, J. Gresham Machen writes about the preaching in his own day, and this was in the 1930s where he saw this trend happening. He said, what I need first of all is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Do you have any good news? That is the question I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me. I'm tired of good advice. Somebody give me good news. I need pardon from God. I need forgiveness. Somebody give me good news, not just pump me with good advice. Remind me of the gospel week in and week out. I need it. Otherwise, that good advice is all going to fall flat. Okay? And so the church is never in such bad shape as when she assumes the gospel and then starts on to move to other things. Okay? And the very worst case scenario of this happening Uh, of a man not keeping a close watch on his teaching, is that false doctrine and heresy can even enter the church. Okay, But church elders, and ministers especially, but the whole church, everyone here, has a responsibility to keep a close watch on our lives, on our conduct, and on our teaching. What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you filling your mind with? What kind of habits are you forming? Okay, And then, examine your week. Think about the things you said, the conversations you had, the things you did, okay? What are those ideas and those words and those actions communicating about Christ and his gospel to others around you? Back to Timothy, he's to persist in this task. We saw how training and persistence can be hard work, but it's worth it to put the effort in because of the reward. And persisting in setting an example... And remaining committed to scripture, to teaching, to exhorting, keeping a watch on your conduct and on your teaching is all hard work. But there's a vision of the prize here too. Persisting in these things is going to save us. Look at that verse. It's going to save us. Everyone in this room is going to die. Okay? The death rate is pretty near 100%. We're all going to be there one day. Some sooner, some later. But everyone is headed that way. Okay? We have one life to live and then we transition into eternity. And our life is not meant to be wasted on peddly little endeavors, okay? And especially not to be wasted on ease and laziness. It's far better for a Christian to wear out rather than to rust out. Either way, you're going into the ground. 
And so we may as well have used the life that God gave us to live faithfully and to the greatest advantage of his kingdom. And this doesn't mean that there's not time to rest. Of course, God put a whole day in the week specifically for that purpose. There is time for rest. And we're more productive in the long run if we don't burn ourselves out. So this isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. So rest is an important part of the creation. But we need to be diligent about turning a profit on the talents that God has given us. They're to invest into further work in his kingdom. And by investing these gifts into the kingdom, Timothy is going to save both himself and his hearers. Okay? And what does that mean? Can Timothy save your soul? Can a minister save your soul? Well, of course not. Okay? And we, we saw this kind of language, remember a few chapters back, that women would be saved through childbearing? Right? Remember that? So are they actually saved? Are they justified before God because they had a baby? And the answer is clearly no. But there's different aspects of salvation. There's different links in the chain, right? And so you read a a verse like Revelation 13.8 and it talks about the idolatry of those people whose name have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So in one sense, your salvation goes back to before the world was even created. In one sense, if you were a Christian, you were saved before there was a world. Your name was in God's book. Okay? But then there's also a moment in time at which you were born again, at which God took out your heart of stone and put it on a heart of flesh. This is the rebirth or regeneration. Okay? Uh, this is the new heart that sees Christ for who he is, that wants to obey, that wants to come to Christ and be justified. And your justification isn't uh, a process, it's a one-time thing, in time, snap, it happens in a, in a beat of a, you know, a heartbeat, that God now declares you righteous. This isn't a process, it's a declaration. It's a legal declaration. You go to God's courtroom and God declares you righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because when he looks at the defendant's stand, he doesn't see you, he sees Christ's righteousness covering you. And on that basis, he doesn't say not guilty, he says perfect, righteous, holy, absolute perfection is what God is looking at in his courtroom. That is justification. And it's not your works, it's Christ's works covering you. That's justification And that happened when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, okay? It's not a process, it's like a light switch. It's off completely and then it's on completely. There's no degrees of justification, there's no, uh, you know, aspects or working out justification. It is a pure gift of grace, pure gift, pure grace. But then the next link is your sanctification and this is where your behavior starts to reflect what God has declared you to be. God said you're a Christian, now you start living like it. He said you're righteous, now you start living like it, okay? And slowly but surely, the old man is dying and the new nature is being risen up, okay? This is more like a dimmer switch. It's not just off or on, it slowly gets brighter. Sometimes there's a setback, but over the course of a lifetime, it gets brighter and brighter. So unlike our justification, sanctification is a process in which you are actively involved, In your justification, you are passive as you receive a gift from God. In your sanctification, you are working out that holiness. And then the last link in this chain is glorification. And this happens when we enter eternity and into the eternal presence of God, where all the old ways, all the old man is completely dead, completely gone, completely behind us. And now our behavior is completely aligned with that legal declaration that God gave us at our declaration. So these are all separate, distinct links in the chain, but they all belong to the same big chain called salvation. Okay? They can be distinguished from one another, but never ever separated. They necessarily work together. 
So there's no such thing as a person who's in the Lamb's book of life who fails to be born again. Okay? And there's no one who's born again who fails to be converted. And there's no one who's converted who fails to be justified. And no one who's justified who refuses to be sanctified and so forth. Okay? Uh, they, they must necessarily work together. They're distinct links, but all one chain. And this is why the Bible talks about salvation in different tenses. It talks about you were saved, past tense, you are being saved, present tense, and you will be saved, future tense. This is all true because they're all looking at different aspects of our salvation. Okay? And some of these are behind us, some are a present reality, and some are future. So in which of these senses is Timothy going to save himself and his hearers? Okay? Uh, it probably, for most people, will not be in the sense of justification because Likely, hopefully, most of the people in the church hearing the message are already justified. That's a past reality. And it can't be in the sense of our final glorification because everyone who's listening is still on this side of eternity. So for some, it may be that the gospel message happens for the first time and they do convert and they are born again and they are justified. And so it could be salvation in that sense. But most likely, for most of us, it's going to do with our sanctification or our growth in our holiness. Okay? And in one sense, even this is a gift from God, but it's the active part that we are living out in the course of our Christian life. And so just as preaching the gospel is the means by which people are converted from darkness into light, so the teaching and exhorting and teaching of Scripture are the means by which we grow and are sanctified. This is the food that goes into our body to fuel us for our training program. These are all tools or instruments that God puts in our hand to build us up and to build his kingdom. And we as believers have to take these instruments that God has given us, these means of grace, very seriously. This is the way God is pleased to progress us through his training program, to graduate us through his training program. And it's the same as what we read last week. We have to read our Bibles. We have to put ourselves in a local church, and not just occasionally either. Our week must be structured around the corporate worship, the one and six pattern that's there from the very beginning of creation. Corporate worship is the marker for your week. It must be. We need to be under the sound teaching of God's word and in an environment where we are able to exhort and encourage and pray for each other and spur each other on to take the next step because there are no Lone Ranger Christians in God's economy. If you try it, you're going to fail. So notice how all these instructions are happening in the context of a local church, of the Ephesian church, with leaders who know their flock personally. So this can't be recreated on a video or on a hologram or on YouTube. It's real life. It's real life getting to know each other, plugging it in. And so I'll ask, what are you going to do about this? How does this passage help to shape your view of the importance of the church and of her teaching ministry? Does this help to stimulate your appetite for doctrine, for familiarizing yourself with God's word and then applying it into your life? What about for corporate worship? What about the other six days of your week where you're out doing your work? How is scripture going to shape and teach and exhort you? And I will leave you with that thought. And I'll ask for the musicians to come up. Before I forget... We're going to have some young ladies handing out flowers on your way out for the ladies here. So please take one. And then I'll leave you with the charge for the week. The charge is this. One of the things that Christ does when he saves us is to put us into the care and community of his church. 
The mission of the church is clear, to build up the saints through the public reading of scripture, through exhortation, and through doctrinal preaching. This is the nutrition program for the people that God has enrolled in his training camp. The church drifts from this mission at the peril of herself and her people. Things may appear busy, but if the busyness isn't intentional and focused on fruitfulness, it will burn us out instead of building us up. So as you go out from here, think of the gifts God has given you to serve with, and think of how the gifts of others have served you. Consider the importance of Christian teaching as you are taught and as you teach others. And then I will leave you with the benediction from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them for every good work and word. Amen. And go in peace.